Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Turn with me, if you will, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will focus our attention this morning on verses 12 through 20. And we will be addressing the question, maybe you've thought of this question from time to time. I know I have earlier on in my Christian life. What if Jesus had not been resurrected? What if Jesus had not been resurrected? How would that impact your life? How would that impact our world if Jesus had not been resurrected? We live in a time and in a culture where the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is considered by many to be a myth, a legend, a religious story that is told to relieve the spiritual angst of the weak-minded. In fact, many scholars and some religious scholars rank Jesus with King Arthur, Paul Bunyan, William Tell. In other words, they believe he never existed at all. There was no historical Jesus. We are, for the most part, what Paul said to the Greeks in Acts chapter 17 and verse 22 as he stood in the Aragopagus. And he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. In all things you are very religious. Our cities, our towns, our communities, like ancient Athens, are filled with temples and shrines and monuments dedicated to gods and dead heroes. But the truth concerning Jesus Christ is lost to the majority of the people in our country. And sadly to say, the truth of Jesus Christ is lost to many of the religious in our country. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul spoke to the Athenians about their altar to the unknown God. And he spent time to explain to them who this unknown God was and how he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins and then was resurrected from the dead. But the philosophers and the religionists argued with Paul about this. They, got, they mocked his gospel and faith was lost to all but a few. Dionysius the Aragopagite, a woman named 
Damaris, and a few others with them. And it's sad to say, but it's also true. A highly intellectual society, a highly religious society was ancient Athens. But it was one of the few places where the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and no Christian church was birthed. A number of years ago, our president said this country is not a Christian nation. Some people were outraged by this statement. Many in the evangelical church and in the Catholic church. Whether the president was right or wrong in his assessment, the truth remains that as a nation, we are more like the Athenians than we are wont to believe. We are more like the ancient Greeks than we would like to think of ourselves. I can remember, I don't know maybe if you can or not, some of you are not as old as I am. Some of you wish you weren't as old as I am. But I can remember going to school, public school, and the first thing we did at school, we read from the Bible. In public school, first period, we read from the Bible, and then we prayed. Once we were taught from the Bible, and we were encouraged to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're schooled in comparative religions, philosophy, science, the arts, sports, and so on. We're taught to be skeptical, skeptical and closed-minded with regard to the Bible and with regard to the Judeo-Christian faith. We accept everything into our educational endeavors except the biblical teachings of the Old and the New Testaments and especially of Jesus Christ. There's only one corrective to the spiritual apostasy that we're experiencing in our country. Only one answer to the spiritual questions that are not being answered by many of the churches in our country. Only one solution to the spiritual crisis of the culture. And it's simply stated by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, when he said, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Are you saved this morning? Do you know what salvation is really all about? Do you even care that God has sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on a cross 
so that your sins might be forgiven, that you might have eternal life in him. Does that even strike you as being significant or important in your heart, in your mind? The apostle Peter preached Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, as did Stephen the deacon, as did the apostles Paul and John. For over 2,000 years, true saints of the Christian faith have preached Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And we must preach and teach and witness to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified upon a cross. And the third day after his crucifixion was resurrected from the dead. We have to preach that and teach that and bear witness to that in our generation and into the next generation. Because there is no hope for a lost and dying soul. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There are a lot of things that are important in life, are there not? Yes? Education is important, yes? Vocation is important, yes? Family is important, yes? How you live your life is important, yes? How you spend your time and your material resources are important, yes? But beloved, these things pale in comparison to the importance of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For all of these other things will pass away when you pass away. But a life in Jesus Christ is eternal and will never pass away. Even when this world passes away, the believer will live on with the Lord in glory. But, what if the Athenians were right? What if the Christless religionists of our day are correct? What if Jesus never existed? Or his crucifixion and resurrection is nothing more than a religious story to appease a guilty conscience? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to look there with me this morning, beginning in verse 12. Let's stand together in honor of God's word as I read, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. If Jesus 
had not been crucified and resurrected, our theology would be totally and utterly absurd. If Jesus had not been crucified and resurrected, the Bible would be a book of lies and myth and legends. Jesus would be a fraud and his gospel would be a sham. Faith in Jesus Christ would be meaningless and our preaching and our teaching and our witness to others would be pointless. If Jesus had not been crucified and resurrected, we would be damned. We would still be in our sin, condemned by God. And all who have died believing in Jesus Christ will have been completely annihilated. No existence after death at all. There would be no hope for our future. There would be no forgiveness for our past. We would be a people pitied and ridiculed by everyone. In other words, our religion would be the biggest farce among all religions. Our faith would be the greatest hypocrisy among all faiths. Jesus would be the worst con artist among men and we would be the sorriest fools on the face of the planet. But look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the rest of the story. Christ has been risen from the dead. And you may very well say, well, the world doesn't believe that. Doesn't matter if the world believes it or not. It's God's Word and God's Word is truth. Christ has been risen from the dead. He's not the first person to be resurrected from the dead. But he is the first fruit, as the Apostle Paul says here, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not the first one to die and be resurrected, but the first one to die and be resurrected, never to die again. Never to die again. Against and, and as such, he is the beginning of a new order in human Existence. He is the beginning point of a new life for the human race. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to Martha, who was the brother of Lazarus, a dear friend of Jesus, who had died. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that those who believe in him, though they may die a physical death, they will continue to live spiritually with him for all eternity. I want you to notice in verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul continues. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 
but each one in his own order. I want you to mark that, each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now we need to rewind in order to get the bigger picture. What this is really all about and why it is so important, why it is so significant. Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that God said, do not eat of it. In that act of disobedience, the entire human race inherited a sin nature through Adam. The entire human race inherited a sin nature through Adam. God also judged our first parents for their sin and punished them and all who live after them with a life of hardship and suffering that eventually leads to death. Moses, the great prophet and lawgiver of the Old Testament, wrote in the 90th Psalm, speaking of God, he says, You turn man to destruction, and you say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood, they are like sheep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. But in the evening it is cut down and it withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You've set our iniquities before us. You, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Not a pretty picture, is it? But it is the truth. We've all experienced this in the lives of others. And we as a fellowship here have experienced this more than our fair share in the last several months. We've had many brothers and sisters who have left our family here and have gone on to be with the heavenly family. And we rejoice that they have gone on to receive their reward in glory, but we grieve in our hearts because we love them and we miss them. We miss their fellowship. We miss their contribution to the life of the church. We miss their ministry to the community. Many of them have been 70 and above. And so we know the words of Moses to be true. We look at the lives of our dear friends and in many of them their lives are hard. Their lives are nerve-wracking. Their lives drive them to the edge. 
And they cry out, is this all there is to my existence in the earth? So Moses is not speaking of things that are not real. He's not speaking of things that are beyond us. He is speaking of everything that is real to us. And it pains us, does it not? Yes. It causes us to grieve, does it not? Yes, even in our own lives, when things get tough, when times are hard, and we don't think that there's going to be any resolution to the situation, we cry out to God for an answer. We cry out to the Lord to save us, to help us, to show us what needs to take place in our lives. Moses is speaking to us. In the life that we live, in the life of our dear friends and family members, all of the hardships, the heartaches, the sorrows, all of the grief and the pain and the labor and the burden that we bear, all of it is the result of sin. All of it is the result of sin. But Jesus has changed that. Jesus has changed that for Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What is he saying? He's saying Adam was the man through whom all born of him inherit spiritual death. Understand this. Because we have inherited a sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, because we have inherited a spiritual nature from them at our physical birth, we were also born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. But because of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, whom He has sent to be our comforter, Our spirit has been made alive in Christ. Adam was the man through whom all born of him inherit spiritual death, but Jesus is the man through whom all who believe in him inherit spiritual life. The spirit is made alive in Jesus Christ. And now because our spirit has been made alive, we can rightly relate to the Lord God our Father in heaven. We can understand the spiritual truth of His Word. We can have peace with God. We're born spiritually dead as descendants of Adam. We're made spiritually alive because we believe in Jesus Christ. Notice the 23rd verse of the 15th chapter. But each one in his own order... Christ the first fruit, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. As I stated a few moments ago, Jesus, as the Apostle Paul writes, is the first fruit of those who had fallen asleep. And that phrase, fallen asleep, is simply Paul's way of saying the death of the Christian. And he doesn't call them dead. He doesn't say that they have died. He said that they have fallen asleep. Why? Because even though the body has died, the spirit lives on. The soul of the individual continues on. And the body in the casket, the body in the grave looks asleep. 
but it will return to the dust from which it was made. And yet the individual, the person, is with the Lord in glory, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we do not die. We simply transition from this life in the flesh to the life that he has promised us in glory. Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. And in time, and I believe that time is coming very soon, in time, all who name the name of Jesus Christ will experience that same resurrection, a resurrection to eternal life. And you may ask, well, when will that happen? He answers that question in verse 23. It will happen at his coming. Well, when is that? Well, let me just, I, I don't have the time uh, to, to get into the theology of all of this, but let me just simply state it as, as simply as I can. I know that's redundant. Forgive me. Let me say it as simply as I can. The resurrection that the Apostle Paul speaks of here has two parts to it. Two parts to it. The first part will take place at what we call the rapture. At what we call the rapture. You're in 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn right to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul talks about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says here, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, the word ignorant may not be a word that you want your children to say, so on and so forth, but it's a perfectly good word. Ignorance simply means without understanding. It's something that you haven't come to know yet. Um, some of you, uh, when you were in your school experience, you started off in elementary school with elementary math. Two plus two equals four. Well, it did when I was a kid. You know, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, at, at that level, you had no concept of algebra. You had no concept of trigonometry or any of those other things. You were ignorant of the higher levels of mathematics doesn't mean that there was anything in you that was deficient. It just simply means that you had not expanded your understanding to grasp those higher elements at that point. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing here to the church at Thessalonica. There are some things about the resurrection that you haven't understood yet, and I want to tell you about those things. And so he says here, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. See, they believed that their Christian brothers and sisters who have died, uh, that there was no hope for them because they believed that Jesus Christ had already come. And if the resurrection is going to happen when Jesus Christ comes again, and they believe that he had already come, somebody had told them some wild tale about that Christ has already come, then there was no hope for the dead in Christ. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not true. That's not right. 
For if we believe, he says in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the rapture. This is the time when Christ will appear in the sky. From Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon those in the upper room and they went out and they ministered to the thousands of people who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate not only Passover but then Pentecost. Thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ that day. From that day until the day Jesus appears in the sky, the bodies of all Christians who have died will be transformed into glorified eternal bodies. They will rise up out of the earth and they will meet the Lord in the sky. Christians who are alive at that time, their bodies will be immediately transformed into glorified eternal bodies and they will rise up with the others to meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture. And Paul says, that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. Scripture tells us that after the rapture, those people remaining on the earth will experience seven years of tribulation. And you can find that information in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. The second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and you cannot... You cannot mix the two. You cannot equate the two. The rapture is not the same as the second coming, and that is not the same as the rapture. There are two separate and distinct events in Christian eschatology. The second coming of Christ will mark the end of the tribulation. The bodies of all Christians who will have died in the tribulation will be transformed into glorified eternal bodies and will enter then into the kingdom that Jesus Christ will set up at his second coming. And those who are alive at the time of the second coming who have faith in Jesus Christ will enter into that kingdom and will be subject to Christ in his kingdom. Turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's just before the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason I want you to turn to that passage of Scripture is because he describes the second coming. Paul in 1 Thessalonians describes the rapture. Zechariah chapter 14 describes the second coming. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. He calls it the day of the Lord. In fact, that's what most, if not all, of the Old Testament Hebrew people, prophets and teachers and so on, called uh, the, the coming of the Lord. The coming, they called it the great and the terrible day of the Lord. It's the second coming. It's when Jesus is going to set all matters right. He's going to bring back into existence all that God intended the earth and humanity to be and to experience after sin had run its course. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, he says, chapter 14, verse 1. 
And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. You see, in the rapture, Jesus does not come and stand on the earth. We, he appears in the clouds and we are caught up to meet him in the air. But at the second coming, he comes and he stands upon the earth. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Making a very large valley, half the mountains shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Isaiah. Yes, you shall flee, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you, see, will be coming with him in the second coming. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no night, there will be no light. The lights will, be, will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither night nor day, but at the evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. All the land shall, be return, shall turn into the plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanael, to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. He's describing the millennial kingdom of Christ. He will come and establish his kingdom on the earth, and the earth will be restored after the tribulation, and the people will live under the authority of Christ in peace. All you need to do is go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 6. And he describes what that millennial kingdom, existence in that millennial kingdom, is going to be like. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. You're familiar with that. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be no war for a thousand years under the reign of Christ. So now. What if Jesus had not been crucified and resurrected from the dead? There is no glorious hope for our future if Jesus has not been risen. There would be no hope for any of us. There would be no hope for this earth. There would be no hope for future generations. There would be no hope for past generations. But because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, we have the greatest hope of all. We have a hope that is everlasting. We have an assurance of our own resurrection in Him. And when He comes again, we have the joy of reigning with Him in His kingdom here on the earth and in eternity when He creates a new earth. 
for us to inhabit. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just a story. It's not just some fable. It's not a fairy tale to appease the sinful conscience. It is not something that only feeble-minded people are meant to believe in. The resurrection of Jesus is life for all who believe and condemnation for all who do not believe. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you will, please. David, come and lead us in a song and we'll be dismissed. He is Lord And He is Lord And He has risen from the dead And He is Lord Every knee shall bow Every tongue confess That Jesus Christ is Lord We pray a blessed and peaceful day to you and that you'll remember throughout the day that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have life eternal in Him. Father, thank You for the love that caused You to send Your Son Jesus, that He would die upon a cross for us, and that You would raise Him from the dead to seal that promise of resurrection that promise of salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Take us from this house to our various destinations and the activities of the afternoon and evening and in all things. May we be grateful and may we express our gratitude to you for all that you have blessed us with. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all of God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.